0: Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Rebecca Reynolds says, I have the sort of personality that tends to feel a lot, think a lot, and question a lot. That's putting it mildly. She's an outlandishly prolific writer, producing magisterial, poetic, well-reasoned Facebook post slash essays several times a day, most days. I don't know how she does it. She narrates audiobooks, she's working on an updated version of Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, and she's the author of Courage, Dear Heart. At the risk of seeming self-absorbed, I will quote my own blurb from that book, because I meant every word of it. Wisdom and compassion illuminate every beautiful sentence of this gospel-infused book. I love that Rebecca Reynolds chose the title Courage, Dear Heart. She's one of the most courageous people I know, and her heart is one of the dearest. Rebecca Reynolds, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. I uh, love your writing, and I love your approach to um, to the creative process. And um, I'm just looking forward to hearing what you have to say in the next half hour or so. Great.
1: I love your writing too, Jonathan. Um, so...
0: and. An idea that's important to you, and it's an idea that I've been familiar with for a long time, but I've never quite been able to 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 get what is significant about it or what's helpful about it, and this is Dorothy Sayers' idea of uh, idea, energy, and power, um, which you have a lot of – you've done a lot of thinking about. Would you kind of um, – and, and specifically, I know you've done some thinking about how this theory is helpful in terms of breaking through creative blocks and helping people uh, you know, uh, be productive. Um, can you just, I think this is probably going to take the, all the time we have together for you just to sort of talk about that, that idea and why it's valuable and how it could be helpful to writers.
1: Sure, yes. Well, you know, this idea comes about in her book, The Mind of the Maker, mm-hmm. and she uses it in several different ways she uses it artistically and she uses it theologically okay so um i don't know if we want to talk about both of those here i think most of your listeners are probably looking for the creative aspect of it right
0: i think so and i uh, yeah let's 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 work from the creative side of things
1: okay um and you know it may not be helpful to everybody uh it's helpful i've you know, I'm a I don't know how much your listeners value the Mers Briggs and I don't know how much I value it. Some people just think it's a bunch of bunk. But mm-hmm. um I do tend to think pretty categorically, uh, like to see a framework and then I feel pretty comfortable rebelling off of that framework. Uh-huh. But sometimes if I see a framework, it helps me just kind of get oriented and then I can spin off and do my own thing. And so, um, I think that this isn't the only way to do creativity. In fact, I've worked with a lot of other writers and artists and creators who don't do anything like this at all. They kind of just sit and wait for some sort of muse to hit them and Mm -hmm. they kind of see this reality and then they have sort of a weird metaphysical process of creating that that seems to work for them. Um, The problem with that with me is that if I'm only waiting for that, then I feel it's really easy to get stuck I mean it's yeah. really easy to feel like there's no path forward. And so if I see a framework, I can kind of calm myself down and uh, think, hey, this isn't um, some supernatural process. It can just be, hey, let's take the next step in a yeah. sort of a methodical way. And so
0: yeah. Or um, or more to the point, if if it may be there's there is something supernatural, I think, about creativity, or certain, certainly something that's supra conscious, but this process that you're about to talk about, I think, gives us a way of handling what we can handle, doing what we can do, right?
1: Yeah. It maybe kind of removes the ego from it, because yeah. sometimes when you're waiting for that supernatural moment, it kind of can become this persona of, like, I'm the one who has access to this super creative force, yeah. and, you know, there's kind of that whole thing that develops. And Or, if or I'm just the one of, who doesn't
0: have access to it, which is yeah. <laughs> also not pr- productive.
1: Right. And so... I like things that kind of neutralize some of that and yeah. sap the year out. So uh, this is one way of thinking about it that has helped me in the past. So, but okay. I also kind of um, mistreat sayers in how I'm applying this. So there's that. Okay. Okay. So idea, energy, and power, and. The way I'm going to tackle it is a little different than the way Sor- Sayers handles it. She would say that the idea is actually precognitive, like you don't really – you're not ever really aware of it. It's more like a flash of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And so I'm warping that a little bit because what I've done with the idea is cognitive. Because it's really hard to talk about something that's pre- precognitive. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> you right. Know? What can you do with it? Yeah. Um, I don't disagree with her, but as I was thinking about it practically, I was like, I'm just going to have to take this a step off of the precognitive to actually make it do anything. And then um, energy, that is the physical outworking. So first you have your inspiration, which is your idea. And then you have the doing of it. So if you said, I want to write a novel about the Civil War, you know, I get this brilliant idea about a novel about the Civil War. That's your idea. Yeah. The energy is the doing of it, the making of the chapters, the organization, all of the writing, the re- rewriting. The editing, all of that. Uh-huh. Then the power is how that novel connects with readers and other people. So does it work? And it, she says, it also can be how that novel connects with yourself. Hmm. So because she wrote a lot of plays, you know, she, some of her examples are um, in terms of how does the audience respond to the play? Does it work?
0: Uh-huh.
1: Do you see what I mean? Yep. So that's basically that's the main three step process: idea, energy, and power and so what i did was i broke down each of especially that i guess today we'll talk about the idea and the energy into smaller steps that i feel like helped me think through who i am as a creator and how i go about the creative process okay um is that good
0: yeah so far so good okay so you've you've you break up. I'm, I'm looking at a chart here, which I'm going to post in the show notes, or, yeah. or figure out some way to do that. I don't quite know how these things work, but I can figure it out. I'm sure. And um, and so within the idea, you've you've broken this down into general inspiration, um, which is biographical factors, the the art that you've been exposed to, and the natural world, right? And then particular inspiration, right? Um. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I think the general inspiration, this is stuff that has formed you as a person, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so if you have been raised, um, you know, if you were exposed at some point to somebody who, uh, I guess we probably should pick a discipline here because that way we could be more specific. But, you know, if you walked into a museum and you were struck by John Singer Sargent's Brush strokes, or by a particular use of light by an impressionist, um, and it just moved something in you, then that didn't just quicken in you an appreciation for Sargent or for um, Degas it helped you see a particular use of paint or a particular angle on what light does when it hits a subject. So Uh those are, depending on what you've been exposed to um, as a kid and as you've grown, that's going to have some sort of impact on you. Um, Also in terms of how your family, you know, how the people you respected talked about art, if they were constantly wanting to kind of simplify, you don't be, too high and mighty, don't uh-huh. be, um, you know, who do you think you are? You need to be down to earth, you, need, you know, versus somebody who's raised in a home that really wants elevated beauty, yeah. um, distinguished beauty. So all of these things are going to impact your aesthetic, and they're going to impact you both, um, you know, in terms of what you love, or maybe if you had a negative experience, is going to push it the other way.
0: Yeah. Okay, right. so so when you're talking about you know, general inspiration, you know, that that part of the idea part of the of the cycle here. Or guess I say the process rather than the cycle. Um, is there anything it, there's doesn't sound like you in in this portion of things are are giving anything resembling advice, you're just making observations. Is that Is that right, true? Right, because
1: knowing knowing ourselves is important. Uh Um, And if you think about, you know, what were the worst errors an artist could make, you know, when you were a kid, like if you were around a musician and they were were constantly complaining about somebody being too complex, they're just Mm. showing off, you know, then that's going to impact you. And so as a creator, when you're writing, even if you have a different discipline, if you're starting to write and you're thinking, oh, I'm scared of putting details in there, it could be because you heard criticism of a musician criticizing another musician who is too complicated. And I think until you realize, at least for me, until I realize how some of that exposure and some of that criticism has impacted me, Hmm. it's going to kind of subconsciously impact what I create. Yeah. Um, And so just knowing ourselves, I think, can help um, relax in certain areas or tighten up in certain areas. Mhm um, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was an abusive perfectionist, and so she painted her walls fourteen different shades of white Wow, <laughs> um, because she could yeah, and um as she was dying of cancer in the hospital, she lifted my mom 's skirt up to see if moms had hemmed her skirt properly with the right stitches so um, and she was also a cruel woman, brilliant but cruel, and so I grew up having to like refold the towels a certain way before she would come visit, and that fear was always there. The art, it has to be perfect. And so um, when I create, a lot of times I rebel against that, and I just say, I'm not going to work this until it's perfect. I'm going to keep the living heart of it. But sometimes, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I, I value, because I saw the fear that created and the damage that did, I can swing too far toward just kind of reckless and, um, you know, inspired creation and not work it enough. So yeah. um, it's helpful to me to see those kinds of biographical factors, those kinds of aesthetic factors, and even the natural world. And I think where this comes into play is like if you grow up out west, where the landscape is very sparse and arid and open and there's not the lavish uh, flora and fauna that we have here you that's going to impact how you see beauty versus mm-hmm. in the mountains mm-hmm. where there are tons of sounds and tons of colors and tons of growth and tons of smells and mm-hmm. um, when I just you know just got back from Oxford and I got to stay kind of out in the country there and simply being in the English countryside on my bus rides back and forth I understood something about why um, English poets created the way they did just seeing where they were. And so, you know, I I just think all those things kind of form your general inspiration as an artist.
0: How did the, so how would you say the natural world formed you as an artist?
1: Um, I grew up, I grew up kind of in Wendelberry country, I guess would be a good way to put it. Uh And I, I grew up, Um, collecting insects from the time I was a little bitty girl and studying insects. And so when you're doing entomology, you're immediately noticing very teeny tiny details and you're classifying. You're going, everything is genus, species, you know, order. Mm -hmm. You're going up and you're finding how things all fit together. So my brain now works like that. Um, Also just being in a a place where seasons were very powerful you know uh-huh. some people live where it's pretty much temperate all year and he had the extremes of the spring storms and the sky turning green and you think yeah. you're gonna die and <laughs> you know <laughs> the depression of february and yeah. the, you know just those extreme things i think you know they sitting in a barn and a cow barn for hours and hours and hours and watching the sunlight come through the little speckly dust and watching little baby mice and hay. Yeah. And, you know, I just think that kind of influenced um, how I see earth versus somebody who's grown up in a city. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who was primarily around concrete and, um, you know, controlled landscape. I had a lot of wild mm-hmm. natural beauty growing up. Yeah. So... I don't know. That's a that'd be a long answer, but that's a that's a brief answer. Yeah. Um,
0: okay. So our our ideas, are you know, as we sit down to, to make something, um, mm-hmm. our idea is shaped as as your um, uh, chart here that I'm looking at, and again that I'm going to offer to the reader um, by general inspiration. the, the sort of what you've been exposed to, whether that is your biography, right. your, um, your exposure to art, or your exposure to the natural world. But then you also speak of particular inspiration that shapes right. a given idea. So can you talk to me about that a little bit?
1: Sure. The, the best example that I can think of for this um, off the top of my head is the Robert Henry's book, uh, The Art Spirit, which yeah. I think that inspired um, Asher Lev. I think that was Uh the book behind that. Uh And he was an art instructor and students would come sleep on benches just so they could listen to him. And somebody collected a bunch of his lectures. So it's a little bit slapdash. The book is, you know, Mm -hmm. just this kind of collection of thoughts on how art is made. But he puts a lot of emphasis on the moment you walk into a room as a painter and you get this image and you go, oh, and you catch, and you try to hang on to that because that initial flash is your particular inspiration. And I think that as a creator of maybe a short story or of a poem, um, you can go into how do I make this sentence or this phrase or this rhyme or this, you know, whatever, metrical footwork, and it's easy to get lost in that. Uh-huh. And so you need to go back to the particular inspiration that, because that's a unifying thing, hmm. the one thing that caused you to be inspired. And I guess that could morph over time, but if it does morph over time, you need to always go back to it as it morphs, and it, hmm. then it needs to be central. Um, and so that is more just the specific inspiration that caused you to want to write about something.
0: Is there and so is is that specific or that particular inspiration? Is that more likely to be um, conscious than the, the more general inspiration that you, that you talk to, talked about earlier?
1: Um, I think, now, different people may feel differently about this, but I like for all of this to be conscious. Yeah. Because if I'm not aware of what has influenced me and where I'm scared, Mm -hmm. And where I have my confidence, because sometimes I have my confidence in things that aren't correct. You know, if I grew up hearing this is a good aesthetic over and over and over again, I might need to be challenged on that because I might need to let it go. Uh Um, Right. So um, I'd like for both of them to be conscious. I think this is more practical, I guess, in terms of just the practical singular driving force behind. a Like if I... If I go out in the woods and I'm like, I want to catch the feeling of this, and so I'm going to write a poem, um, I'm constantly going back to what was that moment exactly like. Yeah. Um, You know, and I may be thinking, oh, Milton, this reminds me of Milton, this particular shade, or that Mm -hmm. sound, I remember a phrase from Tennyson, or, you know, so all of those things are still back there. Or I may be thinking Jonathan Rogers says keep this close to the earth, so <laughs> yeah. don't get all academic here. You know, like yeah. make it real. Um, so those things are behind me. But if I go only to those things and I don't go to that point of inspiration, then I'm going to lose the image that's critical to making it happen. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So if if the idea is the um, the genesis, uh, well, mm-hmm. it, you know the. The beginning of a of a work of art that also, it's not just the beginning, but it's also what keeps you on track as you as you keep moving. Um, the
1: lodestone, the lodestar, the
0: lodestar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good. Um, energy is it, it and so yeah. energy is the outworking of that idea to you know giving it a local habitation and a name. Um, and so it's everything in, involved in in the process of actually taking that invisible idea and making it visible in the world right. is that is that fair to say
1: Yep, it's the doing. It's the um, all of the work, the comprehensive work of creation. And I've already said that I've kind of messed up Sayers' idea because everything that we just talked about, an idea, she would probably put in energy because she said the idea is just pre conscious. But mm-hmm. I needed to separate those two things just for myself. So sorry, Dorothy uh-huh. Sayers. I love you wherever you are, and you were right. But just I'm just yeah. wanted to clarify that okay. she would probably put even that first part of what we talked about in, in somewhat into energy, especially the, the the second part, the particular inspiration. But let's let's just forgive me for that. Yeah. Um, energy is more of just the practical doing when an artist or writer thinker sits down to actually do something with their inspiration.
0: And so you you speak of it as a cycle. Um, Is that your Mm -hmm. language or is that Dorothy Sayers' language?
1: That's mine. She didn't talk about this. Uh, being a cycle, but the reason that I wanted to put it in terms of a cycle is because I feel like that feels safe. Um, Mm -hmm. A linear process sometimes to people can get them stuck because they Uh feel like either they have to do it a certain way or if they miss a step they can never return. The idea of the cycle is automatically forgiving. Mm -hmm. Um, It allows you to loop back because sometimes in creativity you need to loop back and it allows you to redo. It's just a much safer way of thinking about it, I think.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about that energy cycle. Then. Okay. Um, All right. And since it's a cycle, you can start wherever you want to. Correct. Okay. Is that the idea? Yeah. I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna start with moodling, which I believe is a Brenda Ulin term. Um, and she talked about just the importance of wandering and letting your mind rest. And as I've done some reading about how creativity works, you know, in the past, there have been quite a few mathematicians that um, were trying to solve complicated mathematical dilemmas. Mm-hmm. They did the research, and then they just went to sleep, or they went to do something else, and boom, the solution would come to them. And our brains, I think, sometimes work when we're not forcing them to do something. They kind of have an autopilot. And so if we will take the time to just moodle and wander and give ourselves permission to get that inspiration, I think that's a, um, that allows some rest instead of the fear to take over. Um, and playfulness too, because, you know, play immediately negates fear. You can't play and be scared at the same time. Uh It kind of gets that childlike, um, strength back so and then you launch and that's where you're giving yourself permission just to try it like put it down put something down take a shot at it um and as you're doing that you know that there's going to be time to come back to it later so you don't have to stress about it you just get it down yeah um
0: the bad first draft
1: yeah bad first draft put it down there and nobody has to see it and you can throw it away and you know Mm -hmm. it's just keeping that playful spirit almost, even if it's serious, just, you know, not taking that first draft because it doesn't identify you. You know, you've already talked about your identifying factors in the idea. You know Uh who you are, you know what you've been exposed to. That's you. You know, you have your biographical background. This is just what you're making. So you're launching the idea. And then I think that's where it's good to go back and look at your inspiration. Like you're returning to your idea and saying, okay, I've got this rough draft. Let's go back and look at the inspiration. Mm -hmm. You know, what aligns with that? Where do I have characters that don't really align? You know, you're looking for inconsistencies there. That's more of an analytical stage.
0: Yeah. So Um, let me ask you something, Rebecca. It seems to me, um, you know, the novels I've written – I didn't know – like, I've written four novels, and only one ended the way I thought it was going to end, because right. I didn't know what I was doing until I waded in and started doing that. I mean, so so the idea of returning to the idea, how does that comport with the, the truth that we often don't know what it is we're actually doing until we get in there and start doing it?
1: Do you mean that we're writing to discover instead yeah. of just writing after discovering? Right, yeah. Right, right. Well, I think that even as you did that, probably, I could be wrong, because I haven't written a book like what you've written, but my guess is that as you wrote and you discovered, you were kind of leaning back into a subconscious idea, even if it wasn't cognitive, Mm -hmm. you were still following this sort of um, invisible guiding reality that Uh was coming to life in your writing. Is that Uh right? So, Probably if just... so.
0: I, I, it's just that I'm, I'm a, as a practical matter, the idea of returning to the idea—I think this is this is the point at which, for me, the energy cycle—that's that, that's my biggest concern about the energy cycle as you mm-hmm. have presented it—is that it is it seems to assume that I know what idea to. I mean, to say return to the idea is a conscious thing. I'm, I'm going to compare what I've done to my original idea.
1: Right. That probably depends on the project somewhat. Uh-huh. Like if somebody knows where they're going ahead of time and they've got it all sketched out versus if they're riding to discover. But the way I think about what you are describing here is sort of like a um, have you ever ridden on a zip line? Yes. Okay, you know how even if you're moving on that zip line, there's still a point of contact at the top to which you're attached. And so I think sometimes writing is more like that. You may feel like you're free and you're just flowing, but there's (laughs) still, there's still a unifying point at the top. And even if you don't completely know it consciously, it's still there and it's still guiding you. And so I would think that that returning to the, I would think that returning to the idea in a situation like what you're describing and that kind of writing, it's more, it's somewhere up there and you're holding to it. And because all this is fluid you can kind of discover some of that as you go, but there was still something that caused you to be interested in that. Yeah. And so instead of being legalistic about it, I would think, am I accomplishing what caught my heart about this? And if that is moved, if yeah. the idea is moved, does everything still line up with that point of contact? Yeah. Because if you don't have a central point of unification as you move, then you're not both going to be split.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, okay. That makes a lot of sense actually. And, and a knowing my idea, knowing what got me started writing this book is not the same thing as knowing how it's going to end or it. Right. Yeah. Okay.
1: Right. And it it. may change. Like you, I think you'd got to have, you have to give it permission to change, Yeah, but if it does change, then you're kind of in the midst of that cycle. And so Mm -hmm. when you're returning to the idea there, It's not just, did I do what I intended to do, but if there's a new idea that's emerging, does all of this adhere to that new idea? So, I think you could look at it that way as well. Yeah, okay. Um, And then there's the persistence delight um, section. And I love this because um, there's a – my favorite storyteller is Dale Callahan, and I don't know if you've ever heard him, but he will stand for an hour – and tell an epic tale that's perfectly constructed, and you you feel like you're hypnotized listening hmm. to him because you really go there like it's it's marvelous. But um, he told one called Pouring the Sun about um, you know, the iron industry and all the immigrants that were coming in, and I mean it's just it's amazing that what he can. One was a guy who was in a kayak tracing the path of a bird along the East Coast, and huh. just. Incredible storyteller. Um, But he talks about, at at the bottom of the page you can see, I've mulled a great deal on two images of horses in the last two years, a dray and a roan. The dray, a workhorse, feels life is to be plotted through. The roan, slender and full of life, feels life is to be delighted in. The Roan Gallops with the Ease of the Wind. At Connie Reagan Blake's suggestion, I'm imagining the two horses at ease with each other. And I think that's a really important part of the creative process. You've got to have both. You've got to have that childlike delight of discovery and this is fun and, oh my gosh, I get to do this. But also, sometimes it's going to be hard. And like Stephen King says, sometimes you got to keep growing even you know, if you're just shoveling stuff from a sitting position, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll make that I'll make that PG yeah, <laughs> thirteen right. decide about the the quote was a little different than that, but yeah. um, um, and I think if you get, to, what do you think happens, Jonathan, if you get to one or the other, like if you're only persisting or and not delighting, or if you're only des- delighting and not persisting?
0: Hmm. Um. That's a great question. I I think there have definitely I mean I I think as I as I grew up and became a grown person writing um I came to terms I mean I had to come to terms with the the truth that you've got to be the you got to be the dray, you got to be the workhorse. Yeah. Um or it's not going to happen. Um I mean, there are so many things that I started in delight, and when they weren't, when it wasn't fun anymore, I just like, ah, you know, I think I'll go watch some television now or whatever. Um, On the other hand, since I've been a grown up, there have been plenty of times when I lost touch with the delight. Um, Yeah. And and that tended to be, for me at least, um, when I couldn't get any distance between. Um, my creative life and providing for a large family, you know, and <laughs> yeah. and so um, you know, I, I remember there was for a few years there the only thing I ever wrote that I wasn't getting paid for was rabbit room posts, and I yeah. I loved so I, I mean I loved rabbit room posts. It was one thing I wasn't doing for money, yeah, and it was and and I couldn't, um, yeah, I, I I have been on both sides. You know, I, I've fallen in both ditches on that on that road, um, and um, usually am sort of tipping over in one ditch or the other, really. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. when I when I can push through, I mean, what I fi- what I do find is that usually it doesn't take a whole lot of reminding if I'm really doing the work for the for the delight to come back. Right. Um. And. For me, at least, it has a lot to do with doing doing work that's that's I'm not getting paid for. Right. I also need to do work I get paid for because you know, <laughs> the bank wants me to pay that mortgage every single month, and they get very <laughs> uh, adamant when I don't.
1: So annoying. Yeah, I know. Well, and some of this, not just with this point, but with all of these, it might be helpful to. Um, I heard somebody say once, know yourself and lean the other direction.
0: Wow, um, that's great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, if you're the kind of person who launches all the time, but you really don't do the evaluation or, you know, like, all of this is just a loose framework. But I'm the kind of person who feels pretty comfortable with creating something and then completely defying it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Wait, What do you mean, really... creating
0: something and then defying it?
1: Like creating a structure from which I work and then going, well, that's just a structure, but at least it's directional, you know, at least, you know, even if I'm rebelling against it, at least there's a plan. Right. And so I hope that nobody will listen to this and feel like, oh, you have to do it this way because you don't. But it could be a way for a trigger to come up in somebody and Mm -hmm. say, oh. That's something I could apply. I can take this part of it, or yeah. um, I don't. I don't really need to delight anymore because I'm of such a playful person. I never do any work, or <laughs> <Yeah>. I'm <laughs> I'm type A and I work all the time, and I need to remember to be childlike. And so, you know, you might need to tweak some of this depending. Or I Moodle all the time, and I never actually launch. You know, yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. need to Moodle very much. So anyway, um, mm-hmm. take it with a grain of salt.
0: All right, and then community.
1: Community, yes. Um, yeah, just be selective about whose opinion you trust. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you listen to everybody, then, um, you know, you're going to lose yourself. You're never going to be anything specific. Yeah. So I like to pick about five people um, or seven people and think, if I, if they are okay with this even if they're not okay with all of it but if it res- resonates with this you know group of people then i'm going to be happy with it no matter what happens yeah beyond that so
0: yeah that's such an important idea that um um thinking about what is your smallest smallest well uh what's his name um Seth Godin uses the term "smallest viable audience." Um, yes, and and he's talking in, in financial terms. Um, what? But you know, your smallest financially viable audience is still way too big. <laughs> so yep. the, the question is, what is the smallest number of people that, if if they're happy with this, I'm going to feel good yep. about this. Um, I love that. And it'd be great if that could be you know, me and God or something like that. But the truth is, we we (laughs) need a few. I need a few people to to, to like me.
1: (laughs) Oh, I don't know, though. Like, if we're creating for people, I think it's okay to create for people, you know, because we're we're giving to each other. And um, I I remember a friend of mine one time talked about an audience of one, and she was talking about God, and she was maybe a little more uh, people-pleasing than I am in general. So maybe that was freeing for her, but... Um, for me, if I I think I'm motivated by having a small audience of people that I would love to yeah be in community with, and I li- I like that yeah. Um, you know, when I first started, kind of getting into the publishing part of writing, because you know I was doing my book and I was getting mm-hmm. advice about how to blog and how to social media posts, which I've completely obviously wrecked. Um, <laughs> broken every rule but um you know i was told to to blog two times a week uh 800 words or less on one theme so that i could develop a brand
0: i guess the rebecca brand
1: yeah Yeah, you have totally
0: messed that up
1: yeah i yeah i intentionally i thought about it but i feel like that kind of deep And it may work for some personality types, so I don't want to condemn it, but I think it would have crushed me. I think I want to stay human, even if I'm not red. And I see, Mm -hmm. you know, I've seen, especially in the Christian world, some people kind of become a brand, and then there's no room for them to be honest, and then it kind of gets infected, and 10 years later, they're, you know, in some kind of crisis. Not that I won't be in a crisis in 10 years, but um, it'll be a... Different kind of crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't really want to separate my humanity from my from my persona. So um, anyway, yeah,
0: that's it's not that's not sustainable.
1: I don't think so. No. Not for me. So anyway, there it well,
0: is. Yeah, this is what we talked about was not a half hour conversation. That was a it was a book. Why don't you write a book about it?
1: <laughs> well, uh, I hope it. I mostly hope that it doesn't cause somebody who is very type A and system driven to feel like this is the right way to do it. My hope is that somebody who's stuck mm-hmm. will be able to kind of look at these incremental parts and either say, Oh, I can't do the whole thing. I can't write an entire book, but I could maybe launch this or I could go yeah. Moodle or I could yeah. know myself and hear this criticism that I heard when I was seven years old and realize that it's now a barrier to me trying um you know uh, yeah one of those little things that might help unlock somebody
0: yeah um that uh, and so appropriate advice as you said before was know yourself and lean the other way if if you're already yeah. too you know systematized um mm-hmm. then this may not be especially helpful but but right. uh, and i love what you said about taking um you know, thinking about advice, that we, there there are little, little bits of advice we heard somewhere along the line that the person who gave them wasn't even thinking, and didn't mean for you to organize your life around them. It's like I don't right. know if you ever saw Ricky Bobby, but you know, his dad said if you ain't uh. first, you're last, and so he spent the rest of his life trying to be a race car driver. And then and then when he finally uh. confronted his dad about it later, his dad said, "I was I don't I remember saying that. I was probably drunk when I said that." You know.
1: Yep. Um, yep. Wow, that's crazy. Stuff sticks. Yep. It gets in us and it sticks.
0: That's right. All right, last question. Yeah. Which writers make you want to write?
1: Hmm. So, um, hmm. I love Hopkins, I love Wendell Berry. Uh, I love like you Shakespeare read, You
0: read Hopkins and you think I think I could do that I want to try that
1: Well I don't want to answer that <laughs> <laughs> There's no way to answer that well <laughs> He makes me hungry How about there that go. Okay. I mean And yeah. there are certain phrases Like um, And I know that you're not a, a big fan of Elliot And sometimes I'm not either I think mm-hmm. sometimes he's just Full of himself But mm-hmm. when he's on there are yeah. certain phrases that oh, I uh, just...
0: Yeah, I have to agree uh, with that.
1: And then Herbert, uh, his heart is so beautiful. I think it's funny. I always stand in the tension between John Donne and Herbert because uh-huh. I feel like Herbert was such a better person and he makes me want to be good. <laughs> uh, Donne makes me want to be eloquent and mm-hmm. to st- you know, so it's not really one person. It's sometimes the tension between writers. If I can yeah, stand right yeah, yeah, in yeah. that crux and go, oh, imagine what would happen if somebody had Herbert's heart with Dunn's brilliance or, yeah. you know what I mean?
0: Yep, I do. That's great.
1: But um, but mostly, mostly the nature makes me want to write. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, I feel like the world is a hymnal and it just begs to have somebody <laughs> put You know, it's not like you're even writing. A lot of times it's just saying, please write this down for me. And Uh, I think being outside does that a lot more than anything, so.
0: That's a great reminder. All right, (sighs) Rebecca, thank you for taking um, this much time away from the Fairy Queen to talk to me.
1: Uh, It's fun, Jonathan. Thank you for asking me. Yeah,
0: and um, I wish we could have talked about your Fury queen project and your audiobooks, but there's just too much. There's just too much to, uh, to Rebecca Reynolds to cover in half an hour. So oh, maybe we'll try well, again some other time. Another day. Thanks Rebecca.
1: Thanks Jonathan.
0: The rabbit room has partnered with Lipscomb
2: university to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the center for entertainment and arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship and their encouragement and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout-out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song, Finch in the Pantry, as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music.
0: The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.
2: This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.